Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Glad you're all here this morning. It's good to be together, you know. For over 2,000 years, Christians all over the globe have been gathering around one person. Not a dictator, not a politician, not some tyrant. We've been gathering around the person and the work of the resurrected Lord Jesus. People of every skin color, ethnicity, tribe, and tongue, whether in traditional church buildings or cathedrals, in a hut, in a cafe, under a tree, people have been gathering around the person and the work of Jesus Christ because he died and because he rose for the world that God so loves. So as we begin today, I want to remind everybody, we're gathering here not because of a myth or a fable or a fairy tale, but rather we're gathering specifically around the person of Jesus. The gospel is not something that's just on its way. It's here now too. Frederick Buechner writes about our world. It's a world of magic and mystery, of deep darkness and flickering starlight. It's a world where terrible things happen and wonderful things too. It's a world where goodness is pitted against evil, love against hate, order against chaos. In a great struggle where it's often hard to be sure who belongs to which side because appearances are endlessly deceptive. Yet for all its confusion and wildness, it is a world where the battle ultimately goes to the good who live happily ever after and where in the long run, everybody, good and evil alike, become known by his true name. That's the fairy tale of the gospel with, of course, one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it's true. And that it not only happened once upon a time, but it's kept on happening ever since, and it's happening still. So, it's true. Mark chapter 16 says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome brought spices, that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Well, the reason why I believe that the gospel is not a myth or a fairy tale is because of the record of the women's testimony. The women's testimony, first. In the first century world, and in many places around the world today, a woman's testimony is not held as credible or valid in court. But these women are mentioned in all four gospels again and again as being the very first ones to experience the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why is that important? Why does that matter? Here's why. Because the evangelists were more committed to the truth than preserving cultural or social norms. They were preserving the facts. The women were there testifying to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But here's what's interesting. The women weren't actually expecting to find a resurrected Jesus. Jesus had predicted multiple times that he would raise from the dead, but nobody believed him, not even the women. At first, they had gone to the tomb to do what? Anoint a dead body. (laughs) They weren't actually expecting to find an empty tomb, but that is exactly what they found. 
the angel told the women, go tell Peter and the other disciples that Jesus has gone ahead and he'll meet them soon. Luke chapter 24, listen to what the response of the apostles were. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, a fairy tale. And they did not believe them. The disciples went, no, no, I, I, not, not, I don't totally buy that. They would have acted like you and I if someone said there was somebody resurrected from the dead today. You and I would all look at them like, kind of like a dog that heard a whistle. Like, hmm, I don't know that I believe that. The early disciples responded the way we would. And John picks up and says there began a foot race. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John. (laughs) And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that he just put that in there. Like, by the way, I beat him. I was first. I was there, like, to preserve in the word of God for all time. I beat Peter. I was faster. I just love that. Oh, and by the way, Jewish men didn't run. It wasn't dignified. Jewish men don't run. You don't, you don't hike up your tunic above your knees. That would have been considered culturally shameful. But all of a sudden, now we got a foot race because if he is resurrected from the dead, I guess there's no more shame. So they're running. The other disciple reached the tomb first, stooping to look in. When he saw the linen cloths lying there, he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him. (laughs) He's just really driving the point home. I beat him. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but had been folded up and put in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, third time, also went in and saw and believed. Hmm. The Gospels tell us that Jesus went on to have breakfast on the beach with the disciples in in Luke 24, and he says, look, he's eating a piece of broiled fish, and he says, look, I'm not a ghost. Ghost, ghost, Ghosts don't have fish sandwiches, but it's really me. And they began to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared on one occasion to over 500 people at one time. It was undeniable that Jesus was raised from the dead. Another important fact about all this stuff with the resurrection is that Jesus' tomb was never enshrined. If you go to Israel, there's competing places. He was buried here. No, he was buried here. No, he was buried here. Unlike other major religious figures of the world, like Abraham buried in like Hebron, Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, was buried in Medina in 632 AD, Buddha buried in China. But Jesus has no, we can't really nail it down exactly where was he buried because he only borrowed the grave for a weekend. And then thus, there was no way to actually enshrine this sacred place. So there's a few places in Jerusalem, like maybe it was here, maybe it was there. It was a borrowed grave, which if you borrow a grave, (laughs) you're God, you're God for sure. Hmm. All right, so on to our Easter passage, which is a little unconventional, but it's in keeping with, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark throughout the year anyway, and there's a whole lot of good news in here. 
By the way, I want to say thanks to all, all our kids sitting on our first few rows. We reserve this, and we have all of our signs that say uh, adults only, no, no, or no adults allowed, kids only. Yeah, so thanks, you guys. All right, so, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. So who's the they? They were bringing kids. It's this crowd of people that have been following Jesus, and they brought children to Jesus that he might touch them, that he might bless them, that he might speak a word of grace over their lives. And the disciples rebuked them, which seems kind of (laughs) harsh. Why would the disciples go, no, 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 Jesus doesn't have time for, for that. Here's why. Because in the first century, they treated children very differently to how we often treat children today in the Western world. In the first century, children were treated much like how people on the margins of our current society are treated. So we think of it in terms of Title I schools, unhoused neighbors, refugees, the elderly, people that get pushed to the margins of society That's how children were seen because in a first century agrarian world, all they were was a mouth to feed. It was hard. They were a burden on the society around, and so they weren't exactly treasured. And so the disciples, when people start to bring these marginalized people to the presence of Jesus, the disciples don't totally get it. And they start saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. Jesus is famous. Jesus is God. Jesus has something to get done in this world. And they begin to withhold the children. Uh, A theologian, William Lane, that lectured here at SPU for 20 years, wrote in his commentary, the kingdom of God belongs to children and others like them who are of, quote, no apparent importance. So that was the way children were viewed. But when Jesus saw it, he became indignant, or literally the word is, his mind became oppressed. (laughs) When Jesus saw his disciples, his acting this way, his mind became oppressed. He became very frustrated, angry, disturbed that his disciples would withhold marginalized people from getting to him. He became frustrated with them, and he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Let the children come to me. It's there that you begin to see even the glowing kind of childlike heart of Jesus himself. Today in Seattle, Washington, he would say, let the refugees come to me who are seeking asylum. Don't make it hard on them. Don't make life difficult for them. He would say, let the physically handicapped come to me. Think about those who are struggling. Let them come to me. Make life easier on them. Let the marginalized, let the oppressed come to me. He would say to the disciples, stop treating me like everybody else who doesn't have anything to do with the least of these. I'm on their side. I'm on the side of the person who's needy, weak, poor, and cannot lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. I'm drawn to the poor in spirit. I've come for the people who have tried and failed miserably and just don't measure up. That's who I've come for. And look, if you're uncomfortable just being in church this morning, wondering like, uh, all these like God-fearing saints, I shouldn't, I kind of don't fit 
I want you to know that Jesus most especially came for you. And then listen to this overwhelmingly beautiful, challenging statement about how one is reconciled to God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Receive. Whoever receives the kingdom. See, the kingdom of God is not something we build or advance or create or fulfill or manufacture. The kingdom of God is not something that we earn because we're good. The kingdom of God is something that we receive. We are the recipients of the grace of God. To receive a gift is to acknowledge your need like a child and to become poor in spirit and say back to God, I can't reconcile myself to you no matter what I do. I can't fulfill my own life's purpose, but you can and by your grace and with your help, help me receive the kingdom like a child does for their very daily provisions. God, help me be able to humble myself and just receive and not be so impressed by myself, you know? And the, hmm, the tenses of the verbs are also important. We're to receive the kingdom now, but we enter the kingdom later. Whoever receives the kingdom will enter it later. So if you don't receive it now, you will not enter it later. The kingdom of God is experienced now, revealed in its fullness. And what do we look for now? What are we looking forward to? Well, we're awaiting the return of the king. And what will we find at the return of the king? Verse 16 tells you. And Jesus took them into his arms. And he blessed them, laying his hands on them. That's what the return of the king will be like for his children. He will take you into his arms and bless you. Of all the places that you could ever belong and wind up after every wrong turn, if you receive the kingdom like a child, you'll wind up in the arms of Jesus who are stretched out and pierced for you. God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will never perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth of the gospel. It's the hope of our lives. It's the hope of our city. Okay, you guys have been really good down front, by the way. Thank you. Yes. All right, you guys want to have some fun? Okay, Jude, come help me out. You come up here. Come on, Jude. <laughs> All right, and if my egg ushers can go take their places, that'd be great. Jeremiah, Early, Rudy. Oh, and Pete. All right, great. All right, you're going to hang on here. Now, we don't pass an offering plate at our church, uh, but we will pass uh, an Easter basket <laughs> around here. And so if you'll take one 
and pass it down. And here's the thing, promise me, don't open your egg until Jude gives us the whistle to go, okay? When Jude says, let's go, we'll open our Easter eggs together, okay? All right, now, they're passing out Easter eggs. Now, as they're passing out Easter eggs, I want to, um, I want to speak to the grown-ups for a sec. Receiving the kingdom of God is hard. Becoming like a child can be very hard for a lot of reasons. For one reason, for some of us, it was so long ago. But to think back to receiving like a child, being a child is hard. Some of you had your childhood cut short. Something happened and sapped all the wonder out of life. The mystery and the adventure. Somebody might have passed away. For some of you, you had to grow up too fast and too much pressure was put on you too early. And thinking about receiving like a child is hard. Or maybe none of those things happened to you. Maybe you just grew up as a busy, hurried, Western, North American that was supposed to have everything figured out by the time you were in the ninth grade. Do you remember those feelings? When you show up in ninth grade, all of a sudden, like, hey, so where are you going to college? Like, I can't find my locker yet, but okay, and I don't know the combination. Like, well, by 10 a.m. today, you need to know where you're going to college and where you're gonna do your master's, and you need to know when do you wanna get married and how many kids are you gonna have, and then, because everybody obviously has to follow the same script, of course. And so, and then where are you going to work? And then, you know, what's your vacation's going to look like? And then what's your retirement plan looking like? And what's your 401k looking like? You're like, I am 14. And life feels that way. Hurried and busy. Courtney Martin, a sociologist, said, we got to stop asking children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And start asking them, how do you want to be? Because what is so utilitarian? But how is a person of character? How do you want to be? How do you want to be? Do you want to be friendly? Do you want to be kind? Do you want to be loving? Do you want to be forgiving? Do you want to be compassionate? Do you want to be generous? Do you, do you want, how do you want to be? Hmm. So what does all this have to do with Easter Sunday? Everything. On the first Easter morning, all the adults were running and suddenly turned into children. The women were running to tell the disciples. The disciples were running to look into a tomb. And suddenly, they all were filled with wonder, joy, creativity. What would the world be like now? What could I be like now? If Jesus is actually raised from the dead, what could happen? Who can stop us? Now that Jesus is alive, what does God want to do in me and through me? Hmm. You finally get to play. 